coming. And they're pretty rough guys. I mean, you read some other stuff they did in the book of Genesis, and you might be surprised at some of the things they did. They were pretty rough, rough people. And they saw Joseph coming, and they, they thought, you know, this is, this is good. This is good. We've got a perfect setup here. We can take that little dreamer, and we can teach him a lesson. In fact, we'll, we'll just go ahead and kill him. So, that, so they saw him coming, and they, and they, they got him, and they're going to they're gonna kill him. And, and, but they're not all in agreement on this. So all, all ten of the brothers, uh, you know, they're not, there are a couple of them, they're a little bit reluctant about this. Maybe we don't need to do this. It's, gonna, it's not, not the best thing. So, so a number of things happen. You know, long story short of it is, eventually they throw him down into a pit, and, 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 and they just, they're trying to decide what to do. And some, some slave traders come along, and they say, oh, let's just sell him. We'll never... This, this can kind of fix it. We won't ever see him again. We'll get some money out of the deal. We won't have murder on our hands, you know that. So they sell him to these slave traders. They come up with a story. We'll take that pretty coat of his and we'll cover it in some blood. We'll take it back home and we'll tell dad, hey, we don't know what happened to your favorite son. We did find this coat. It's got blood on it. And, you know, we just figure out what, what happened. And, and, of course, everybody, you know, Jacob assumes that his son is dead and they think they're done with it. They think they're done with it. And I've got to rush through this next part because we've we got to get to Genesis 50. But I want to make sure you understand just, the, just kind of the gist of the story. What happens is Joseph is taken down to, to Egypt by these slave traders. And he's sold. And he's sold into the captain of the king's bodyguard. His name is Potiphar. And so he's a slave. And nobody does well. God blesses him. And he, in fact, he does so well in that household that he rises to, he's basically in charge of the whole house. And but then something bad happens. Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of rape, something he did, or attempted rape, which he didn't do. And Potiphar throws Joseph into prison, and he's there for a long time. And there's a time where he gets his hopes up because he thinks he's going to get out of jail, maybe, but he doesn't. He stays there for years. Finally, he gets out of that jail. God helps him to interpret some dreams, and he gets out of jail, and Again, God blesses him and he rises in the ranks. In fact, he rises so high that he's, I mean, he's a big, he's a pretty big guy in Egypt by this point. And so what happens is those dreams that he interpreted, that God gave him the interpretation of them, Joseph was able to use those interpretations to know some things that were coming. And the land was going to have seven years of just, you know, the crops are going to produce like crazy and then those seven years of bounty would be followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph recommends, and he's actually put in charge of this, he recommends that they, for those seven years, they store up all the grain that they can because it's going to produce, you know, like crazy. We can store it all up and then we'll be ready for the seven years of famine. So anyway, long story short of it. I keep saying that long story short of it. But here, here's the thing. What happens is the seven years of bounty come. Joseph is put in charge. They store up all this stuff. Then the seven years of famine come, and it gets really, really bad. But Egypt is able to survive because of what Joseph had done. All right, but here's where our story kind of comes back with the brothers. What happens up in Canaan where they were, they didn't know about the seven years of good and seven years of bad. They just knew when they got to the seven years of bad, it's really bad. So what they end up doing is they have to come down to Egypt to get grain, to get food. And through a series of events... God is able to save Joseph's entire family by what he was doing with Joseph in Egypt. 
Joseph and the brothers are reunited. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. In fact, Pharaoh says, Joseph, just bring your entire family down here to Egypt. We'll give them a special part of the land and they can live there and you can take care of them and make sure that they're well cared for. So it works out beautifully, you know. Time passes. Jacob and family, whole family's down there in Egypt. But time passes and Jacob eventually gets really old and he dies. Now, Joseph's brothers think what you might think they would think at this point. What is that? The only reason Joseph hadn't killed us up until this point is because daddy was alive. And, and he, was, he didn't want to do it because he knew it hurt dad and dad's been hurt too much. And, but now dad's gone. And now we know what Joseph's going to do. He would do what we would do if we were in his shoes. He's going to get us back now. It's been all these years. They've been down there for 17 years. It's been all these years and now Joseph's going to get us, you know. So they concoct this story. And that's our text. They come to Joseph, or they actually send somebody to Joseph, and basically the, the story they concocted was, you know, Dad's Joseph. Joseph, you need to hear this. Joseph, my, our, our dad, our daddy's dying wish. His last, Joseph, he was on his deathbed, and right before he drew his last breath, he said this. Forgive us. You just need to forgive. That's, that's what Daddy said, Joseph. You can choose to listen to him or not, but this is what Daddy said right before he died. He just wanted you not to do anything bad to us. That's the story. No, absolutely no evidence that anything like that happened, but that's the story they came up with and they come to Joseph. And Joseph just starts crying. You know, this text we read, he just starts crying. He he cries because, I think he cries because after all these years, don't you understand all the good that I've done for you? Don't you understand, brothers? I am not going to hurt you. Don't you know me better than that? I mean, how can you think I'm going to do this now? How can you think I'm going to hurt you now? And then they come before him and they basically just fall down before him and say, Joseph, we, we're, we, we, we know we're bad. We know what we did was wrong. And then Joseph says, you know, guys, verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's not my job. I, 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 know, I know that I'm not the one who's put in the position of judge. Kind of reminds you of what Paul would later say in Romans 12. We don't take vengeance on others. That's God, God's going to one he's going to, he's the one he's going to settle scores like, like that. That's not us. Joseph says, I'm not in the place of God. As for you, and then this, one of the most beautiful verses in all the scripture, I think. I mean, this is, this is really nice. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So you meant evil against me. You did. Jo Joseph doesn't, he doesn't, you know, sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say it was good. No, no big deal. Don't worry about it. He says, you meant evil against me. What you did was bad. And I've suffered, for, I suffered for years because of this. And, and, and it hurt. And I didn't understand. He was a teenager when this stuff happened. You know, probably 16, 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. I mean, Joseph didn't, didn't say it wasn't bad. You meant evil against me. You did. But from his vantage point, where he was now, he could see, he could see what God had been doing through that evil. And this has so much to say to us 
today. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God used it for good. Doesn't mean God caused it. He doesn't say God did this or God caused it or God was responsible for it. But he does say God took what you did and God used it in some good way that I can see now. From my vantage point where I sit on this day at this moment, I can see now what he was doing. You know, but I, I think you got to acknowledge. Do you think that was the case when Joseph was in the back of that wagon? shackled with other slaves, these Midianite slave traders, and he was on that long, bumpy ride down to Egypt. You think Joseph knew at that moment when he was a 17-year-old and this stuff is happening to me, he was thinking, you know what, this isn't that bad because I know God's doing something good. My guess is Joseph didn't really understand that when he was in the back of that wagon. And he was sold as a slave in Egypt. I don't think he understood what God was doing. When he was in prison for those few years, unjustly, falsely accused of attempted rape, his hopes got up one time, but then he didn't get out and he was there another two years. Do you think Joseph understood then what God was doing? I don't think he understood at those moments. It's only now, at this late stage, where Joseph had come to this conviction. Well, I think he had come to it earlier. But it was after a lot of the bad stuff had happened and Joseph started seeing, okay, I, I, maybe I understand what, what God is doing. God meant it for good. Now I want you to think about this with me just for a second. We're going to get to us, this church, this place, this time in a minute. But we, get, we, need to, we need to make another move first. And that is, you think about what this story meant back then. Certainly what it meant to Joseph and his family. But, but think about why this story, how this story found its way into Israelite scripture, I mean, and, and, and how, they, how they read this. Moses collected these stories, wrote some of these stories down, delivered them to Israel, and they, and they encountered a number of things. You can imagine how much, how much hope this gave them at different points in their history when they were, they were in the midst of difficult times, when they were in the wilderness, for example, and they had escaped from Egyptian captivity, but they were on their way to Canaan, and things were bad, and, and they didn't understand exactly what God was doing, and they drew on stories like this one, and they would read verses like this, and they would think to themselves, oh, we don't understand what God, we don't know exactly what God is doing right now, but we know the kind of God we serve. He's the kind of God who takes bad and turns it into good, and so we can know that God's going to fulfill his promises to us, because we've seen it in the past. And you might, you might imagine that later on when they were in exile, I think this story probably carried a lot of impact with them when they were in exile. They were in Babylon. Things were bad. They had committed sin against God and God had punished them, taken, down and, taken them down into Babylon for, for you know, seven decades. And they're there languishing in captivity. And I wonder if they drew on stories like this to help them to get through difficult times because they recognize, you know, this is very bad and we don't understand necessarily in the moment what God is doing. But we know that we serve a God who takes bad and he turns it into good. He takes the evil and he makes it into something beautiful. He can even take our own mistakes and our own sins and our own foibles and our own shortcomings and he can shape them into some beautiful tapestry because that's the kind of God we serve. You meant it for evil, but God has used it for good. Do you see how this story might have given comfort and hope to people in Israel at different points in their history? That's how it was used, I'm sure. But I want to think, you know, I want to think about 
with you. I want, I want to think for a minute about how this might, we might bridge that gap, you know, from this happening thousands of years ago and, and thinking about what it teaches us about God. And I think this is one of the ones that people throughout the years would have read it this way. God is a, is a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant promise-keeping God. This is, this is the kind of God we serve. He doesn't forget about his promises. And Israel would have read this story, and they would have heard this story like this. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a great land, and I am going to bless the world through your descendants. Those three promises God made to Abraham. And things like this, where, where, where the nation of Israel, the budding nation of Israel, just a family at this time, he had Jacob and the 12 sons and, and you know, about 70 of them. It wasn't, very, wasn't really a nation yet, just a big family. And there's this famine and people are dying all over the place from this famine. How, how's, what's God going to do? Is he going to save the family? Well, God used this sin of these brothers to save his family, to save the, the family of Jacob. Do you see this? See, how would they have been saved had Joseph's brothers not sold Joseph into slavery? Because this had been working. God had been working on this for decades where they sold him into slavery. He went down to slavery, ends up second in command in Egypt, and God used him to, to preserve the grain so that Jacob's family and others would be able to find their way down to Egypt and have food to eat, and the family might not perish in the famine. That's what Joe's talking about. Joseph is talking about here. God is a promise-keeping God. He made a promise to Abraham, and it doesn't matter how many years pass, he's going to remember the promise, he's going to keep the promise. God saved the family through Joseph, who only got into the position where he was, was because of his brother's hatred and their selling him into slavery. Now, if they hadn't committed that sin, we know the kind of God we serve. God would have used some other circumstance to save his family. But here's the thing. Joseph recognized God chose to work through those sins in order to save the family because he's a God who keeps his covenant promises. All right? It's a big deal. I hope you believe that. If you don't believe it, you know, if you and I don't believe this stuff, we're going to have some really hard times. We're going to have hard times either way. But if we believe it, it changes the way you view the hard times. Because if you believe there's no purpose in those difficult times, if you believe there's nothing good coming out of this, ultimately, man, it's going to be hard to deal with some of the stuff we're going to have to deal with in life. We live in a we live in a rough place, you know. We live in a, we live in a world that's been, that's been damaged and devastated by sin and generations upon generations of sin. And, and, and this world is a, in, in many ways a messed up place. God's going to fix all this. God's, God's taken this story somewhere. But, but right now we live sometimes in dark parts of the story. And if we don't believe we serve a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, but man, that, that changes entirely the way that we, the way that we face the difficult news that we're going to face at times. God is a God who keeps his covenant promises. I said this earlier, but just think about this with me for a second. God, God takes the good. <clears throat> this is amazing that God can do this. We, we understand God takes the good. He can make good out of good. God, God can make the better out of the good. We know that. It's a little bit more difficult for us to trust that God's going to take the bad stuff though, right? He can take the good, he can take the bad, he can take the stuff that hurts, the painful. He can even take the evil and he can shape it into something good. It's the kind of God we serve. 
I'll look at a couple of verses with you in just a minute to reflect on that. But I appreciate Wes's thoughts prior to communion today um, along this line because, you know, I, I think the story always goes to the cross. The, the Bible story always goes to the cross. It's always shaped and informed by that, that day. You know, I don't know if we, I mean, you've been around church. Many of you have been around church a long time. Some of you may be new to it, but, you know, I, I don't know that any of us, regardless of how long we've been around, understand how evil and how ugly and how just completely and, and unbelievably, inexplicably wicked the crucifixion of Jesus was. From a, just, just a purely secular perspective, a crucifixion was an awful instrument of torture. That's what it was. People did not wear little crosses around their necks prior to Jesus' crucifixion. The cross represented, if you and I can fathom it, the cross represented about the worst thing they could think of. Because you did not receive capital punishment by crucifixion unless you had done something horrible or accused of done, being, having done something horrible. It had been invented by the Persians, perfected as they so often did by the Romans into the most terrifying idea in the world. Lots of bad people were crucified. But on this spring day, they took God. They took God, who was a man who had never even thought an evil thought, much less done an evil deed. They took the innocent and sinless and perfect God incarnate and they put him on a cross. You know, it, it's, Acts 2 and Frank frames it like this, but you, you, by wicked hands, you murdered God. You murdered the Son of God on the cross. How incredibly and unbelievably, unbelievably wicked it was for them to do that, motivated by greed, motivated by envy and hatred, they crucified the Son of God. There's nothing that is more evil than that. There's nothing that's worse than that. From a human perspective, from a sin perspective, it doesn't get any worse than that. And isn't it amazing? I was thinking about it a moment ago during the communion. You know, we don't, we don't have, we don't display a lot of, crosses, you know, in churches of Christ typically. We've, we have crosses up here on the, on the table. Some of you, I'm guessing, are wearing crosses on necklaces or maybe earrings or something. It's just, it's, it's amazing that what represented the worst thing 2,000 years ago now in so many ways represents the very best thing there is to even fathom. The cross now to you and me today, this emblem, this, this symbol represents not so much hatred, it represents not so much evil as it does forgiveness and love and hope. Isn't it amazing that God can take the most 
wicked act ever perpetrated and he can change it and use it into the most righteous and beneficial the best thing that's ever happened do you ever doubt that God can take the bad or the painful or the evil and shape it into something beautiful then you need to go back to the cross go back there and sit there in your mind Go back there and look into the eyes of Jesus and you see the hurting and you see the pain and you see the eclipse and you, if you feel the earthquake and you hear the shouts of anger and rage. And then you recognize that when that tomb became empty Sunday morning and that message began to be preached in the following days that that crucifixion represents all the hope and all the love and all the forgiveness and all the grace that we can ever even fathom. Now, think with me, okay? What this means is you and I carry around some stuff. Sometimes we think about it maybe on the global stage. We think about evil that's happening out there and we ought to think about that. We ought to pray about that. We ought to act in ways that we can to respond to things like that. Sometimes it can be a natural kind of evil in the sense of a, a natural bad like, like a Harvey or like an Irma or an earthquake in Mexico or a landslide in Indonesia. And we think... And by the way, I'm not, I'm not naive. We, we in this church, we aren't, we aren't naive. We don't have all the answers. And, and I don't think that in just a short time I can in some way explain in any kind of satisfactory way specifically what God is doing. We're finite. God is infinite. We're limited by our own perspective, and God isn't. But, but we trust in a God who can take the evil of the cross and turn it into the greatest good. And so we trust in that, and we, and we know, and we hope, and we, maybe we get a glimpse of it and see what God is doing. And, and I've been so encouraged lately, some of it anecdotal, and some of it, you know, USA Today USA Today article that, that was printed a, a couple of days ago about the, the actions, and uh, Eddie was praying about this in his prayer a moment ago, alluded to this, I think, in his prayer, but um, just the actions that have followed Harvey and, and followed Irma and how that people are, are noticing how most of the good, it seems, are done by faith-based groups. So many churches are pouring into Texas and Louisiana and Florida and and. and and, and isn't it amazing? I don't, I don't know. I, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that would come as, that would come as, it could even come as offensive to some people who have been hurt or lost loved ones. But, but I hope that maybe through that we can see a glimpse of what God is doing and how God responds and how God can take something bad and, and he can bring something good out of it, you know? And I'm confident as a believer that God is working in the aftermath of those natural disasters in order to bring about something good, right? Because we, we serve a God who takes the evil of the cross and turns it into the good of forgiveness. And God can take the natural evil of a hurricane and turn it into something good. And so sometimes it's on the global stage or we see things out there. Maybe, maybe it's not a natural, and I'm using that word evil because natu nature is not evil, inherently evil, but... But the, but, the, but the badness, I guess, sometimes it is 
things happen that are evil, such as acts of terrorism or acts of discrimination or acts of violence. We see things happening in the world today and we think, what is God doing? And I don't know specifically in every case, I don't think any of us do, but in our finite way of looking at things and trusting in an infinite God, we see glimpses of his working even in these acts of or in the aftermath of acts of evil in order to bring about good. God is acting. Closer to home, some of you may be carrying some things this morning. It could be just the, 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 the disorder and, and the chaos of the world we live in now that manifests in cancer and other kinds of bad things that happen to the human body. And we think, what is God doing and why? And it may be, you know, like Joseph, it may be that we're, we're in the back of the wagon right now riding down to Egypt. We just got the news. or We're in the midst of, of, of trying to sort through the news. And, and we're, we're in the back of that wagon riding down to Egypt with Joseph. And we're wondering, God, I don't have any idea what in the world you're doing. How can this bring about something good? You know, or maybe we're in the prison with Joseph for two or three or four or five years and, and we're thinking, God, what in the world are you doing? How can anything good come out of this? Sometimes we may not get to Genesis 50 for a long time. In fact, I think it's sometimes true that we may not ever get to Genesis 50 here. We may wake up on the other side and then we're in Genesis 50. Then we can know. But here's the confidence we have as Christians. There is coming a day, it may be now, it may be next year, it may be a decade from now, it may be 50 years from now, or it may be when we wake up, to use the Lord's words, in the bosom of Abraham. But there is coming a day when we're gonna look back we're going to look back at Harvey and Irma. We're going to look back at ISIS. We're going to look back at some of the stuff that's going on in the world. We're going to look back at cancer and heart disease and the stuff that we're dealing with. We're going to look back to the, the storms that we've had to endure. We're going to look back and we're going to say, Satan, you meant that for evil, but God used it for good. We're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what? That was evil and it was bad and it was painful, but now I know. God used that to bring about good. That's the confidence we have as Christians. We don't always know specifically. I don't think we ought to act like we know all the answers. We don't. We don't know. But we know the God who does. We serve a God who takes the evil of the cross and turns it into the greatest good the world has ever known. And surely... He can take the lesser evils that you and I face and he can use those and he can shape them and he can weave those into a beautiful, beautiful tapestry. Someday we'll get to see it in all of its glory. That's the confidence we have as Christians. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's the story of the Bible. And I mentioned this earlier and I'll leave this with you. I mentioned this earlier. In many ways, that's... A, Certainly the theme of the book of Genesis, it starts with everything being good, Genesis 1 and 2, right? God saw the light that it was good. He saw everything that was good. Genesis 3, everything went sour, though. When sin entered the world and bad became a part of reality, 
when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and evil came into the world and what was good became bad and the rest of the book of Genesis, and I think that's why it closes on this note at the end of the book of Genesis. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think in a, in a way that that statement has more to do with the entire scope of the, the story of God than, it, than, it, than just that story of Joseph. You meant it for evil, Satan. You tempted Adam and Eve. Let me tell you something, Satan. I'm going to take that evil and I'm going to bring about good. And that good comes at the cross. If you're not a Christian today, we invite you to come to the cross. Come to the cross. Come to that place of evil. Come to that place of pain and suffering and anger and hatred. Executed by the world on the Son of God. But you come to that place and see not that, but see rather the grace and the good and the forgiveness and the hope that God displayed in that very evil moment. We invite you to come to Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Put him on in baptism. Accept the forgiveness that's found at the cross and at the empty tomb. We invite you today, if there's anything we can do for you spiritually, for baptism, for prayers, or whatever we can do, we hope you'll let us know. Let's stand. Let's sing this song. <clears throat> Sweet his cry of love and pity, color, turn and listen, stay and hear. Yea, that labor and our heavy laden lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and our heavy laden, will give you rest. Take and lowly bear his burden to him turn. He who calleth is the master holy, he will teach if you will learn. Yea, that labor and our heavy laden lead upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye loving to me.